Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. So we're very excited. We have, I think this is our first in-studio guest that we have here today. Is that? We're so fancy now. This is, and we've had guests, but this is the first one actually speaking into a mic. (laughs) And that is Bruce Melman, who uh, folks in Washington probably all know his name. I have been sort of aware of you since I first moved to Washington for a very long time, a very long time ago, where people, when I said I worked at the Melman Group, people thought I worked for you or your brother, who was at the time the uh, manager of uh, the Bush campaign, not my boss, not a Democratic polling person. But so so that is how I first became aware of Bruce Melman. But now he's in the studio and we're going to talk a little bit about his career and this great new interesting polling that we worked on together. Uh, Bruce, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? Well, first, thanks for having me here. Um, it's I don't know if I am honored or frightened to be your first live interviewed studio guest. It feels sort of like experimental surgery. I guess we'll see how it goes <laughs> for you and for me. So I am not Mark Melman of the Melman Polling Group, uh, Democratic <laughs> Polling. I, I've taken a bit of the different tack. Uh, I am uh, a lawyer who came to Washington who realized that it's a company town and it's all about politics, which was always more interesting. I had an opportunity to work undoubtedly against all of your clients as the NRCC's general counsel. So I did that. Um, I left to work for J.C. Watts because I believe the Republican Party was a big tent and he was the, uh, the start of something awesome in our diversification. Uh, still sort of waiting for that to really take off, but I, I was there early, which is good. It's a rebuilding year. <laughs> decade. Um, I, uh, I left uh, to work for Cisco Systems. The short answer, at $35 a share I joined. It got to $88 a share. I did not sell anything because I was invested, and then it got to $9 a share, at which point it was time to join the Bush administration, which I did uh, at the Commerce Department. Uh, serving for about two and a half years there and then left to start uh, a firm that doesn't compete against Mark Melman, but does call itself Melman, Castagnetti, <laughs> Rosen, and Thomas. <laughs> well, thanks. And, uh, you know, folks, and, and I think we got connected through C.R. Wooters, who uh, is well known on the Democratic side. And he has a podcast, too, 14th and K. G. G. 14th and G. They misdirection. You're trying to. It's competition. We are near 14th and K right now. And I ate at G Street Foods across the street. So I'm a little... I'm a little confused. I'm sorry. Fourteenth. <laughs> I am a loyal listener, obviously. Well, and I first uh, came to know your work because uh, back in my days of working at the Winston Group, you know, all uh, Dave Winston, you know, all all friends in that whole world. Uh, and then I now love the PowerPoints that you put together. This is like one of your calling cards. And if you are not someone who receives Bruce's kind of update PowerPoints, it's every. But you is, can is be. It, you can be. One you of can them. be one of those. It's great. I mean, and it's not just because I'm a pollster and therefore I love slides, but if you want to understand what is going on in politics, not just the week to week 
rank punditry that Margie and I engage in on this what? this show. What? I know. Um, but, you know, I, I think you've got to check out Bruce's Bruce's PowerPoints. But you guys have worked together on a very interesting project. Is yes. that right? Yes. So it was a project for the Tech CEO Council. Um, we did focus groups all over the country. We did a survey. Bruce, why don't you tell us a little bit about what was the impetus behind this? What is the Tech CEO Council? So having worked with the tech sector, in my case, since the first internet bubble, uh, tech's always been the sector that politicians on both sides of the aisle, governors, federal, point to as the future, and I think understandably so. Uh, and they've been looked to for their uh, thoughts on policy, for their ways to make the country more competitive and more cohesive and more successful. Uh, and that's both benefited the tech sector and I think benefited the body politic more broadly. But Frankly, in the last couple of years, most significantly in the wake of things such as the election interference and and Facebook uh, Cambridge Analytica uh, data scandal, uh, you could combine that as well with some of the things that's giving Google a hard time in Europe, but also here, 91% search market share. Uh, There's been blowback. Some people call it the tech lash. Uh, And you went from a sector that was uh, the most trusted and a sector that was perceived as the golden goose to a sector that's under attack and under criticism in a way it had never been before. Right. So what we did is we did focus groups in four different markets. We went to a variety of markets. We talked to folks of different, you know, we looked at different audiences. So we thought it best to break out the audiences of the groups by gender and education level, that that would be, those would be big drivers in how you would view tech and your ability to discuss tech comfortably with others. And when I think of focus groups and how you segment them, you want to keep, or at least my approach is to keep the audiences fairly homogenous so people feel like they're in a room of folks where they can speak freely and not feel like, oh, I don't have enough technology and there's somebody next to me who is, you know, some sort of tech entrepreneur. Now I feel like, unco- I feel uncomfortable to talking about this subject. So we didn't, but I, I say this by introduction to say we didn't segment these audiences the way I normally would, which is by party, because everything is so partisan. Everything compl- is so partisan. You can barely, people can barely sit in the same room with somebody who they think might be on the other side of them politically. It gets very tense very quickly. The moment you start saying, okay, great, your community sounds like it's doing well. How do you think the country's doing? And everyone just, you know, this dark cloud sort of descends bum, bum, bum. on the room, right? But that did not happen. I, I bring all this up to say it did not happen in these groups. And we saw it similarly in the poll where we have a conversation. People come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And we talk about tech. We talk about tech jobs. How is it affecting your community? Can you get a tech job? This was one of the big surprises. Are tech jobs available to you? Is that a kind of job that you feel you could get if you wanted to work in the tech industry? And a lot of people said yes. You I was know? surprised by that. That was one of the, and we saw it in all, and we saw it in Janesville. We saw it in Richmond, Orlando. I mean, wherever we went with all kinds of different audiences. Some people said, I may have to go back to school. Some people said, well, you know, I could be a hairdresser at a tech you know, at the Google headquarters, that's a tech job. I mean, people had lots of ways of addressing that question. But what was fascinating is that it was not a partisan, like it wasn't a partisan view. Thinking about tech's strengths and weaknesses was not something that how you felt about Trump or what party you identified with had no impact on that. Well, and to that point you just made, what I liked is you and I would say, can you be a tech worker? I don't know. Do you know how to code software? Do you know how to build semiconductor chips? And that's not the way normal people think. They're thinking about incorporating technology into the job they do. And it could be on a laptop. It could be on a smartphone. Uh, it could be uh, at Disney World on the uh, on the smart passes that they use. Everybody appreciates how much tech 
has uh, has infiltrated whatever it is they work on. Well, and in a way, I feel like that makes sense. I mean, you can think of, let's take a company. So we just had Amazon Prime Day was a, a, a little bit ago. Um, you know, you can take uh, a company like Amazon that I would think of as a tech company, but that nowadays is it's 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 just the company where I buy things, like almost in the same category as a Walmart or a Target, a retailer where I get a wide variety of stuff almost more than a tech company or like my husband is the CTO at a food delivery company. I mean, is and so was that a tech startup? Yes, they have an app. Yes, it's a new way of getting food to deliver your house. Or is it more a food company? It's almost like there used to be back in like the late 90s and through the 2000s, this category of tech companies that now because every company is like a tech company, you can almost differentiate them. It's it's every company is a tech company. Right. And so we found that when we asked people, what is tech? They came. They basically said everything is tech, and and, and some, sometimes they struggled with it a little bit because they're like, well, because they they thought about it in the same way. Is this a tech company or is it just a website? But there's an actual store attached, and and someone said, well, you know, the auto industry. You know what the auto industry is because they make cars. Tech is all these different pieces, and it's everywhere. So they someone said in Orlando, Kristen's hometown, magic bands are tech, and someone said in Las Vegas, blinking lights. On the stripper tech, so you know, slot machines are tech. Slot machines are tech, <laughs> um, and you know, in Janesville, people thought, well, there may be a new app at the factory here. So, ev- literally, everything could be tech. And so, when so, and then the plus sides were just, you know, what are the pros and cons of the tech industry? And people thought of, you know, all the ways it made their lives easier, and it, it made easier to connect with people. You know, faster, more efficient ways to do the things that they do in their daily life. Um, and then the downsides, people tended to think about social media more than tech as the big picture of tech, that there was a subset of tech that they associated with some of the you know, downsides, particularly things like kids being on their phone all the time or, you know, fighting with people on social media platforms, like those kinds of pieces of, of tech were salient as, as you know, more pain points, even though they were still obviously using a lot of do you think platforms. It's, do you think it's good or bad for the industry that people gravitate toward the really consumer-facing stuff when they think of tech versus, like, that, that, that their first thought is Facebook, not Oracle, I mean, or I mean, unless maybe you found that, that that's not the case, but it, it sounds to me like if the consumer-facing stuff is what is top of mind, is that a good or bad dynamic for the tech industry? I think the answer is yes. It is both a good and bad okay. dynamic. Look, in, in government relations, you see it all the time. If you're a consumer brand, it's great. They know who you are. They know what you do. Their mom or their uncle likes you. At the same time, somebody has a computer that didn't work, and suddenly you're in there to talk about tax policy, and they're saying that their uncle's trying to get it returned to <laughs> <laughs> you know, to uh, to Acer, and they're not hearing back. And can you help with that? It's kind of like the airlines too, although they have an even heavier lift. Um, I was surprised that the data was as overwhelming, both in the in the uh, conversations and the focus groups, but also in the in the actual numbers and the quantitative. Uh, Americans still trust like tech. Maybe it's because they think they can access it and it's part of uh, their future economically. Or maybe, uh, Kristen, to your great point, because it's so ubiquitous now that you could be in a food delivery company and you think you're in a tech company because of the uh, because of the app and the nature of how central the app is to the business. Um, what we're seeing, and the reason we wanted to ask the questions is, it's clear that the phone addiction, the social media um, concerns, the privacy concerns, the fake news concerns uh, are being portrayed as tech. 
tech is a problem, tech is bad. And we wanted to ask the question, is that indeed uh, to the Oracles, to the IBMs, to the folks who really do power the world? But, you know, you, you and I think of the Weather Channel. We don't think of the fact that that's really I IBM's um, extraordinary supercomputing capabilities. And we were surprised and we were thrilled that right now, at least, the contagion of, uh, of unhappiness, of mistrust is narrow. It is, fo it is Facebook in particular. It's Google. Um, much more so than, uh, than than the companies where people probably are harder pressed to say what they do. Uh, free idea for the Weather Channel, by the way. I would watch a Jim Cantori plus Watson uh, buddy comedy. <laughs> so, John Goodwin, if you're listening, free idea for the Weather Channel. That's good. That's a good. Um, that's a good idea. I had a friend who did like comedic bits for the Weather Channel. Really? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to fold them into this idea somehow. We'll talk I mean, about so that. So, if if you're a really good <laughs> Weather Channel comedian, do you end up on what, like Golf Channel? What? Where, where does that lead? Uh, he has a variety of platforms that he is. You know, he's done. He is multi-platform. We'll talk about it after. <laughs> <laughs> he is multi-platform. Check him out. He's also not. He's UK based. He's not American based. But, um, but so yeah. I mean, people definitely had this kind of big picture of how they view tech. You know, at the same time, they felt tech was strong. So you know, people were in favor of things to make it. You know, to support the tech industry. But they were. You know, they also were trusting. They didn't necessarily feel that the tech industry needed more regulation. They were in favor of more regulation, perhaps for social media, but not for tech more broadly. Um, but they were in favor of a variety of ways to kind of support the tech industry and um, uh, other kinds of proposals, whether it's like retrain jobs, retrain people whose jobs are lost because of automation or give community grants to improve and modernize local infrastructure, uh, invest in more infrastructure so people have a better experience with using local infrastructure that's tech enabled. Um, even tax break, tax incentives to attract more tax jobs. They were basically saying all of the above. These all these all sound like good proposals. Marjorie, a question I, I wondered about. One thing that came through so strongly was overwhelming confidence in the economy right now. I mean, just you got the sense everywhere we went, folks felt like the economy was strong. And I always wonder how much optimism, enthusiasm, confidence, and trust in in uh, establishment players. Do you hear as pollsters when economy when the economy is going well, and how much do you hear unnecessary negativity when things aren't going so well? Well, typically, people's views of the economy are driven a lot by their partisan views. That you know, if, at least in surveys, when people are asked, "Do you think the economy is on the right track or the wrong track?" If your party is in charge, you tend to be more uh, upbeat about how things are going, and if your party is not in charge, you tend to be a little more downbeat about how things are going. So, I think that raises the question of how much are people's assessment of the economy? How much is it? Is it really what's going on with? the economy versus how much of it is sort of a political, has the halo of a political view behind it. But I mean, you are, you know, in President Trump's job approval, even when he's getting bad marks for things like personal characteristics or for foreign policy, um, he still tends to get okay marks on the economy. When, when I do focus groups, not just these groups, these groups, but also everything since then, in the intro, when you ask about the economy, how's the economy doing, people often and say that their areas are doing well. Usually people are more positive about their own area too than they are about the country. So that's part of it. But everywhere we did for the, went for these groups and lots of places I've been since, people feel upbeat. But when you ask about how's the country doing as a an entity of the country, that's when people start to show the, put on the jerseys and get ready. Are you good with people? 
Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. How much did people talk about competitiveness? Like, this is something that I hear a lot in this town, in this bubble, is concerned that, yeah, we have a strong tech industry, but... China is going to be destroying us in the semiconductor world or in telecom or they're inventing the next cool phone that won't be here. That'll be done there. Is there any sense of threat from innovation abroad or are people just really upbeat about America's tech sector continuing to lead the world? It it was not as much as maybe you would think. I mean, it was there, but it was not something that people felt like really worried about. I think there was a lot of optimism in American entrepreneurship. I mean, that's something that people said, like, you know, we we have the creative entrepreneurial spirit. Maybe there are factories other places, but, you know, we're the place where, you know, these dreams come to life. And that's something that we heard in lots of different groups. Um, there was also, uh, I, I, this was pretty interesting too, people felt like there were a lot of opportunities for families and kids to learn tech skills if they wanted to, that there was, th- these things were, were available and, and open. So, you know, STEM camps, coding camps, we heard about in lots of different kinds of groups all over the country. You know, people said that they, you know, there are st- all kinds of different STEM camps for their kids. Um, so that was something that we heard. So there was a little bit of that. And I think, you know, maybe you heard it more with some of the groups where people had a little bit more engagement in the issue and were following it. Then maybe they they had that had that worry, but it was not as pervasive as I might have thought. Well, and Margie, you went fishing for that. I mean, we that was yeah. part of the questions that we asked is, yeah. well, don't you worry about competitiveness? And, and one of the things you find, and this makes me optimistic about our country, is that outside of Washington, people don't sound like politicians. So, oh, the, thank the, goodness. yeah, exactly. The, the, the <laughs> kind of the sense that the uh, you know that the gathering storm is going to uh, sweep us all away, and and the the sense of crisis and competitiveness at risk, you went fishing for, and you didn't quite get. People recognize that other countries around the world, they they mentioned China among others, would like to be the leader in technology, and they also recognize that America has been. They think we still are, and they think it's important that we remain so. But whereas you talk to a politician these days, and we are, you know, two minutes away from uh, being a third world banana republic, around the country, people seem to get, we've got a lead. We just can't take it for granted. Okay, so let's shift gear. But this is public. I mean, we've released this publicly. There was a piece that uh, Bruce and I co-authored that's in The Hill that we can link to so people can find out more about it. Uh, But let's turn a little bit to working in Washington as a partisan who works in a bipartisan way, kind of like how Kristen and I do every week. Um, you know, how do you feel like what do you feel? How has that changed recently in Washington, the tone in Washington? How does one work as a partisan but still have a bipartisan approach like your decks that Kristen was talking about clearly made with love are trying to show the, you know, like pros and cons for each party, how are things are going on each side. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think people don't quite know how that don't always know how the two parties kind of interact and work together here. Well, first of all, ours is a bipartisan firm, and no client has ever come in and said, I really want to win this vote on the House floor, but not if it takes Democrats or not if it needs Republicans. They want to get 435. And so when you're out of 
uh, electoral politics and when you're off the hill, suddenly you find the Democrats and Republicans work together, talk together and are happy. When I even was on the hill, I, I found for decades part of the reason I think the country got tech policy right is because partisanship stopped at the network's edge and that folks weren't red and blue team about questions like how do we have a more robust telecom infrastructure. That started to change over the last decade where things such as net neutrality were no longer a technical issue about moving bits and uh, around the network, but were rather well, which team are you on? Kind of almost like Kristen, you were saying, you know, if you, if you ask me how do I think the economy is doing, my question maybe will depends, who's president? You know, actually, sorry to digress on this one. There was a poll. This is the pollsters, after all. There was a YouGov economist poll in the middle of last year, and it asked the question uh, of Clinton voters. Do you think the economy is extremely good, good, you know, through that? When they phrased it of Clinton voters both time, when they phrased it uh, since the start of the year, 17 percent said very good. When they said since Donald Trump became president, 3 percent said very good. <laughs> Maybe the... 14% that's missing had an unbelievably awesome January 1 through 20. I don't think so. It's it's hyper-partisanship. Tech policy has been able to, uh, to avoid that, and that's why we've gotten it right as a nation so long. What do you think people get wrong about the swamp? So as someone who's worked in Washington for a long time, you know, we have all been in this bubble. What I love about research is that we get outside the bubble. We get to go hear what right. people think. Um, but I do find now when I go home for the holidays and things like that, that people now have people have never loved Washington. But there's this very kind of clear idea in people's mind now of like what the swamp is. Uh, what do you think people get wrong about how this town works? You know, two things frustrate me about the whole swamp characterization. First, the idea that it's lobbyists and not the the, the media moguls, the opposition research people, the advertisers, the NGOs. I mean, the, the, the folks, the, the uh, organizations that exist to try to shape public policy, lobbying is about a quarter of it. And yet when folks say they don't like a swamp, they presume it's just lobbying. What makes a swamp a swamp is opaque water. You can't see what's underneath. Lobbyists are the turtles that swim atop the water with little <laughs> bells around our necks. So, but number two, um, when I think about, I, I teach uh, business students about 20 classes a year on business government relations. And whenever I start, you, you'll, you'll appreciate this, Chris. And I say, when I'm done, you're going to like PowerPoint and love lobbying. Uh, wow, yeah, that's big a task. Bold claim. <laughs> but what I try to walk business folks through is when you think about, you know, one of our clients that I'm most proud of working with is the Mayo Clinic. It's the world's greatest hospital system. It's ranked number one. It's unbelievably effective. And if you ever visit them in Rochester, Minnesota or Arizona, you just the sense of mission permeates. I mean, they are here to do all of the right, great things. And then you meet policymakers and almost all the policymakers that I've found are are well-intentioned, are uh, serving for the right reasons, but less than 6% of them have a background in medicine. And that includes a large animal veterinarian and people who don't necessarily understand how proposed systemic changes to cover everybody with insurance. That's a great goal. What's that going to mean for the effectiveness of the world's greatest hospital system? And similarly, Mayo Clinic populates its staff with 
extraordinary doctors and nurses and caregivers and people who understand how to make administration work. So when you talk to people who say there shouldn't be lobbying and you just walk through, all right, well, how do you think policymakers who want to make better health care policy and people who want to run a better hospital, how are we going to get to a point where the policy is helping the people intended to be helped? And when you force them to talk it through, in every case, you end up saying, well, we need to have people whose job it is to help educate the policymakers about what makes Mayo Clinic work or what makes Qualcomm successful. And you quickly realize, you know, we really do need this kind of human middleware to make sure that policymakers and staffers are informed by people who are creating jobs and the people who are innovating have an opportunity to, to be heard and to be understood and to shape and to help policymakers shape effective policy. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the criticisms that's that is, I think, somewhat valid is that in a lot of cases, the people with the most expertise on an issue are the lobbyists, in part because the Hill is staffed by folks who are very young, very, you know, bright eyed, optimistic, trying to do the right thing. But working on the Hill means low pay, long hours. And so once somebody has put in a lot of time on the Hill, you know, you can only work for like a, a, a starting Hill salary for so long and folks will leave the Hill. They have all that experience and they go somewhere else to work as a government affairs person for a company, but they tend to be some of the smartest people on the issue. So you'll hear this criticism, well, the lobbyists came in and wrote the bill. But in many cases, the lobbyists are the people that actually have the most experience and insight on the issue. And and it may be a problem that the system is set up where once you get to a point in your career that you're the smartest on an issue, you're incentivized to not keep working on the Hill. But I, I'm sure if we went out and polled, would you support or oppose dramatic pay increases uh, for Capitol Hill staffers? <laughs> I don't think there would be really big support for that. <laughs> that so, question would get cut, yes. That question would, that would yes, it would, <laughs> would, not, would not happen. So, you know, on the one hand, I think lobbyists are providing this service in that they typically have a lot of experience that they are bringing to the table for a lawmaker who is expected to be able to vote on all kinds of issues, but there are only so many hours in the day, so relying on outside expertise is good. On the other hand, if you are a lobbyist, you are working on behalf of a cause. You're not exactly a disinterested party. And so I think that's one of the challenges of, of the system, right, is that lobbyists are not all bad. They provide a valuable service. But is this the best structure where all of the expertise is kind of outside the hill at a certain point, kind of working on behalf of particular interests. Well, look, that's, that's a great point. When I was a staffer, I would reach out to everybody who's typically lobbyists because I'm not going to call the CEO of a company out in California and like, you have time to educate me on what it is you do. And I remember when uh, the Clinton administration proposed the National Nanotechnology Initiative, and I'm a tech policy staffer for a congressman from Oklahoma. And he says, what do you know about this? And I said, I don't know what nanotechnology is. I called Intel. I didn't talk to the CEO, but I worked the phones to talk to lobbyists. And I knew they were interested parties. My background's a lawyer. A lawyer is an interested advocate. Yep. What I thought my job as a staffer was is to take every meeting that was requested of me and talk to everybody who I could. And I would always ask, when you'd come in, I'd say, what do you think the best argument on the other side is? In part, I wanted to see whether you were being honest with me. And in part, if you're a good lobbyist, you know what the answer is and you know the best counter to that. And so my job was to learn everything I possibly could, get as smart as I could, and then go to my boss and help him understand, here's the issue, here's what... I believe is in the interest, the best interest of the district. Here's what I believe is the most consistent with your values. Here are the best arguments on this side, but here are the best arguments on the other side. Okay, so one last question. Um, well, I guess two last questions. So, 
tell us a little bit how folks on the Republican side here in Washington have been viewing Trump and the administration. I mean, there's been a lot of coverage, a lot of talk about, well, Republicans behind closed doors or when they're not on camera, they say X, Y, and Z, but privately they you know, have a lot of misgivings about where Trump is. Um, what is your take and, you know, from what you've seen and observed? So what you say about behind closed doors? Is this, I know the door is closed here. <laughs> well, maybe what you've observed, or maybe if you want to comment on that cover, on that coverage and that narrative. Um, honestly, I, I'd go a step broader, and Kristen, maybe you agree or disagree. I see the Republican, the modern Republican Party is three factions. You have your kind of traditional establishment, generally pro-business folks. You have your evangelical conservatives, and you have this this anti-elitist populist element. Um, that last is the newest. It's the least way we've always done things. It's the one that Trump uh, has really rallied to the to the uh, to the banners and to the cause. But they love the fights with the NFL and a lot of the things that would be perceived as politically incorrect because they're politically incorrect. Um, They're the things that, based upon the great work you've done, Kristen, demonstrate why Republicans may have a generational deficit with millennials, uh, why they clearly have a demographic uh, uh, deficit with uh, Hispanics and others. Um, But it also explains how the president was able to win states like Ohio or um, Wisconsin and and Michigan and Pennsylvania. Uh, Washington typically hasn't had those populist anti-elitists here. It's more elitist in Washington. It's just reality. Uh, So for the establishment folks, they're really happy about the tax cut, which they couldn't get for decades. Uh, They're generally happier, although not 100% on the deregulation. It just depends on what you're talking about. The evangelical conservative mix love Gorsuch and Kavanaugh like the judges um, and, uh, and seemingly aren't holding the president to what once upon a time folks were unsuccessful at holding Bill Clinton to in terms of personal activity. I think it's also the case that, you know, you have there there is a little bit of something for everyone in some of these. So so let's take the the evangelical community, for instance. So not only do they do they like the judges, um, but Donald Trump, who is not uh, he's not, for instance, good at accurately citing Bible verses. Uh, <laughs> two Corinthians, two furious comes to mind. Um, but nonetheless, I think the other thing he does is kind of related to the point you made about the NFL and the populist side, which is, you know, the you can say Merry Christmas again, and that's okay. The kind of fighting these fights, not necessarily even through policy, but trying to kind of say, look, you used to your way of life used to be ascendant or dominant in America. And if you feel under threat because the culture is moving in a different direction, don't worry, I stand with you. And so even if it's not policy, it's that kind of symbolic, I'm fighting for you, that allows him to do so many other things that you would think would be disqualifying and yet still hang on to that support. That's a good point. Okay, so Bruce, how can people find you? How can they find your deck if they want to receive your deck every quarter and learn about all this stuff you're working on? Well, uh, Google works pretty well, uh, okay. notwithstanding a 91% market share that we talked about. Uh, my email is bruce at mc-dc.com. Uh, the f- company, Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas has a website, I think. Uh, and uh, and we're, uh, we're happy to have folks reach out if you want to sign up to receive what Kristen uh, so gushingly described. You're, you're more than welcome to. We, uh, we love both those who are interested in receiving it, but also feedback when smart folks like you and Patrick Ruffini uh, tell us what we got right or wrong or how to do it smarter the next time. We just get better. 
Great. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks, Bruce. Thank you.